0: Testing 1, 2, 3. Testing 1, 2, 3. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is titled, Brave Sir Carry as in Carrie Muhlstein. Well, for tonight's episode, we have a very special announcement. Listeners to this program will know that John DeLynn and I did a three-part, 13-plus-hour interview with Robert Rittner, perhaps the foremost Egyptologist in the Western Hemisphere. And over the course of that interview, we examined in some detail the Book of Abraham and Joseph Smith's translation of not only the papyri, but also the three facsimiles that are contained in the Book of Abraham. They were measured in the balance, and let's just say they were found wanting. Also, Kerry Muhlstein and John Gee, two doctors of Egyptology who are employed by BYU and who have a pretty much full-time job coming up with explanations and apologetics for the Book of Abraham, suffered a number of body blows during the course of that interview. I had heard through the grapevine that the church and the apologists for the church were planning some kind of of response to this interview, which lets me know that it is having an impact not only in the post-Mormon community, but also in the Mormon community and specifically within the Mormon apologetic community. Today's date is Wednesday, August 26, 2020. And yesterday, yesterday on August 25, 2020, we began to see the shape that that response is taking. The first thing you need to know is that, as you will recall, John DeLyn and I had invited Dr. John Gee and Dr. Kerry Muelstein on the air to have a discussion with Robert Rittner on the issues that he had raised, to hear their points of view and their responses, to give them a platform where they could defend the book of Abraham, which they obviously believe is true and which they obviously believe accurately reflects ancient history. We heard no response back from either Dr. John Gee or Dr. Kerry Muelstein until until yesterday when Dr. Kerry Mulestein responded to John DeLynn by email. Here is the response from Carrie Muelstein to John DeLynn. Dear Dr. DeLynn. Well, that's nice of him. He calls him Dr. DeLynn at least. Thank you for your invitation. We are grateful I don't know if that's the royal we that Kerry Mulesteen is using or if he is speaking on behalf of himself and John Gee, who apparently is not going to be involved in this exchange. We are grateful that you would like to give us a chance to present our point of view. The proposal of bringing us together to discuss things so that we can come to a clearer understanding overall and hopefully learn from each other is a good idea. Well, that sounds promising. Of course, it's not going to be an idea that Kerry Mulesteen is going to end up accepting going on. But, yes, but is the beginning of the next sentence. But the kind of discourse that you're proposing seems to call for more than a podcast format to really get the depth and precision and examination of arguments and ideas that you rightfully note that this exchange needs. So it's going to be a big yeah, but. Your email, Carrie Muelstein goes on to John DeLynn. your email has prompted some ideas about other Academic settings where this could happen. Happily, you have done the work of discovering that Professor Rittner is willing to discourse, and we are very excited about that opportunity. Oh yeah, I'll bet Carrie Mulestein and John Gee are really, really excited about that opportunity. We will therefore propose some venues or formats for this dialogue to take place, and we'll take it upon ourselves to work with Dr. Rittner towards this end we will contact Dr. Rittner and take it from here so in other words Carrie Muelstein is going to pat John Delin on the head and send him to bed while the adults talk about grown-up things in the other room Carrie Muellerstein concludes thank you for your efforts we hope that the idea you brought to our attention can grow into a truly significant academic contribution that will provide greater clarity for all concerned parties period signed Kerry mulstein phd director byu egypt excavation project vice president the society for the study of egyptian antiquities and then he puts it in french i think professor department of ancient scripture ancient near eastern studies program brigham young university and then it has his work phone number and his email address that is a very long signature line that dr mulstein has but I am sure that he has earned each and every one of those titles. Also yesterday, Kerry Muelstein put up an article at The Interpreter, a journal of Mormon thought. Generally, they only release articles on Fridays. In fact, every Friday for many, many, many months and even years now, they've been putting up an article every Friday, and the editor of the journal prides himself on the fact that they have managed to put up an article every Friday. Yesterday, however, the 25th of August 2020, was a Tuesday, so this is an exception to that rule. The title of Kerry Muelstein's essay at the Interpreter Foundation, where you can find it, is Raising the Abrahamic Discourse, an essay on the nature of dialogues about the Book of Abraham. Well, what we're going to see is that Dr. Muhlstein is not going to talk about any of the details or the issues related to the book of Abraham, but is basically going to lay out why it is that he and or Dr. Gee are not, repeat, not going to go on any podcast or any other live format to talk with Dr. Rittner about the book of Abraham. No, what they are going to want everyone to do is be patient. Be very patient. In fact, patient is the word he uses. Be very patient while they take their time and write up some kind of article or book That's going to be a response to Dr. Rittner and the points he has raised and then allow Dr. Rittner the chance to spend even more years writing his response to their response. And one gets the idea that what they really want to do is pretend they're responding to the issue and then in this response saying they're going to take several years before they actually get around to responding and hope that in the meantime, everyone will simply forget about this whole fracas and the problem will go away for them. Here's what Kerry Muelstein says. I'll insert a few comments along the way. We live in an era of online communications. Well, that's certainly true. If you want to reach large numbers of people in quick fashion, then online videos, blogs, memes, and podcasts have become the tool of the moment. These tools are effective at conveying information in an attractive and user-friendly format and in a way that can reach across the globe in mere minutes. Well, that sounds like all positives to me. Moreover, they are quite convenient for the consumer, another positive, which further helps spread the message. They certainly have their place and do some things very well, but I bet you can guess what he's going to say, they don't do very well. Well, that has to do with academics about the book of Abraham. Kerry Muelstein goes on, if these online communications have a downside, it is ensuring the accuracy of the information they convey. Well, I don't know why it is that podcasts have any more difficulty conveying accurate information than the videos that Kerry Muelstein himself and John Gee himself, for that matter, in which they have appeared, and also the numerous articles that they have written, many of which we've quoted in our podcasts, which also contain incorrect information. So what I'm saying here is that Carrie Muelstein says that if these online communications have a downside, it is ensuring the accuracy of the information they convey. Well, the downside of the articles, at least by Kerry Muelstein and John Gee, is the same one. Just because they're writing it up in a scholarly paper doesn't mean that it ensures the accuracy of the information they convey. Going on, many are accurate, many are not. And it is difficult to tell which is which? One could say the same thing about papers published in scholarly journals. I digress. Like news sound bites, such media often seems to lend themselves to simplistic and overreduced explanations that frequently misrepresent complex matters. Well, that may be true in a general sense, but the interviews that John DeLin and I did with Robert Rittner are over 13 hours in length. They are anything but a sound bite, and they are not overreduced explanations. They are indeed going deep into the heart of the matter, into the complex matters that Kerry Muhlstein refers to here. Further, somehow, they often easily fall into a low level of discourse. Well, I hope he's not talking about yours truly there. This is not true of all of them. This is not true of all them. No, I think there should be an of in there, but perhaps this was put up hastily. This is not true of all them. It really depends on the hosts and forums. Yet too often this is exactly what happens. Some who engage in these electronic venues work very hard to try to provide accurate information at an honorable level of rhetoric. Such an example would be Radio Free Mormon. Oh, no, he actually doesn't say that last part. I made that up. He goes on, but the forum does not require it. And thus, many are extremely poor at ensuring a high academic quality of information, and sometimes make little to no effort at maintaining the kind of respectful and noble level, noble level of discourse that is supposed to be the hallmark of the academic world. Well, I think we can see where this is going, can't we? Podcasts, bad. Written papers, good. Nowhere has this been more apparent than in some podcasts that have recently been released in various venues about the book of Abraham. Well, I imagine I know exactly what he's talking about there. So apparently what he is now accusing our podcast of having done with Robert Rittner is that we made little to no effort at maintaining the respectful and noble level of discourse that is supposed to be the hallmark of the academic world. I think that's sort of a slam at Robert Rittner as well. But he doesn't want us to mistake his meaning. So he goes on, please do not mistake my meaning. I have personally participated in creating videos and doing podcasts. Well, yes, you have. So what's the problem now, Carrie? I respond to very few of the requests I get to do such things because of the very few items noted above. But he does do them. But he's not going to do them now. One wonders why. Yet I also realize their potential to reach different audiences and the way some institutions engage in them I find to be appropriate, helpful, and honorable but not you, Radio Free Mormon, and certainly not you, John DeLynn at Mormon Stories. I will probably continue to participate in such venues on some occasions in the future. Okay, so now he's done them in the past, he's going to do them in the future, but he's not going to do them with Robert Rittner. This is what this is leading to. Podcasts are a good and fine way of conveying academic information, only not when he's going to have his feet held to the fire by an expert on the subject, Robert Rittner, who does not share his interpretations and in fact finds his interpretations, those would be the interpretations of John Gee and Kerry Muelstein, problematic and even in some instances, disingenuous. He goes on, when I do participate, I try to do all I can to make sure that the platform will encourage and maintain an appropriate kind of accurate discourse. Okay, hang on a second. Carrie. Carrie, you were in a video where you were on screen and quoted as saying that the Leiden Papyrus has the name Abraham at the bottom and it is translated as saying Abraham on the couch. That was not appropriate. That was not accurate. So I find it a little bit interesting that you're going to say that when you do participate in videos, you try to do all you can to make sure that the platform will encourage and maintain an appropriate kind of accurate discourse. By the way, I also know from speaking with others that this particular problem has been brought to your attention in the past and you have done nothing, repeat nothing, in order to correct the problem or have the video edited in order to correctly reflect the truth and maintain an accurate discourse. This is Rich. One of the problems, he goes on, one of the problems with podcasts. We're back to the problems now. How do you solve a problem like a podcast? One of the problems with podcasts, videos, and blogs By the way, I think he's writing in a blog right now. And blogs is that there is no intrinsic mechanism for ensuring appropriate tone or accuracy. Well, yeah, you just have an appropriate tone and you're just accurate. It's the same as when you're writing, Carrie. There's really no difference. It is up to each creator as to whether they will take steps to ensure this or not. And many don't. An additional downfall of these media is that there is also no truly appropriate and effective way to respond to inaccurate or unbecoming podcasts or blogs that already exist. Yes, there is, Carrie. We gave you an invitation to come on a podcast and actually interact and discuss the issues with Dr. Robert Rittner. That is the appropriate and effective way to respond to inaccurate or unbecoming podcasts if you think our podcast was unbecoming. It is obvious that you want to get out of this, and so you're going to use every trick you can in order to avoid it. Sort of like you use every trick you can in order to prove the book of Abraham to be authentic. He goes on, any similar response, no matter how high the quality... So in other words, he's saying if they were to do a video in response to this, even without Robert Rittner on, even if they don't have to debate or discuss it with Robert Rittner face-to-face live, he's saying that if they even did a separate podcast or a separate video in response to Robert Rittner's interview here at Radio Free Mormon and on Mormon Stories, any similar response, no matter how high the quality quickly takes on the semblance of a tit-for-tat kind of exchange and makes the job of the audience who is trying to discern truth from error all the more bewildering. Well, Carrie, you're going to get around to saying you're going to write something up and then ask Robert Rittner to write back It's the same exact thing. How is that any different? How does that solve the problem that you say exists for podcasts? How does just putting it in writing make it not look like a tit-for-tat kind of exchange and make it easier for the audience to try and discern truth from error? You're giving a lot of reasons here, but they don't seem to make any sense. These are starting to sound like excuses as opposed to valid reasons going on even a response that is determined to maintain a high level of discourse which is of course what any response from them would be if it is going to respond to a low level so in other words ours is the low level that they would be responding to and we would be dragging them down even a response that is determined to maintain a high level of discourse if it is going to respond to a low level somehow takes on the appearance of having sunk to that lower level. Well, he's basically saying that he's not going to get into the mud with the pigs to wrestle because he would get dirty by so doing. Thanks for the compliment, Kerry. Moreover, responses always appear to be a level lower, even when they are not. As in athletics, it is often the responder to an unsportsmanlike foul that will receive the flag. So see everything that he's talking about here, all the coded language. The interview with Dr. Robert Rittner for over 13 hours is inaccurate. It is unbecoming. It is at a low level of discourse and he likens it to a foul in sports. And he's saying, well, we don't want to respond to this foul because when we respond to the foul, it looks lower than it actually is. And sometimes that's when the referee calls a flag not on the guy who gave the foul originally, i.e. us and Robert Ridner, but potentially on Kerry Muelstein and John Gee. And yet, he goes on, and yet I have a concern for the audience. Well, that's nice because you know, the audience would really like to hear from you. The audience is wondering why it is that if you really believe the book of Abraham is true, and if you really believe that the evidence overwhelmingly supports your position, why is it that you appear to be scared to come live on the podcast with Dr. Rittner and share to the audience why it is that you are right and he is wrong, why you are correct and he is incorrect? There's nothing about the format that forces anybody to go low. You can be as high as you want. I think Dr. Robert Rittner has been quite high in the 13 hours of podcast interviews at Radio Free Mormon. The only question is whether you will remain on that high level of discourse and it appears that you question your ability to do so. Or you think the appearance of you're just showing up would make people think that you were sinking to Robert Rittner's level. But he does have a concern for the audience. Those who are honestly trying to find truth And avoid error, will not know how or where to find truth, if only error has been presented to them. Well, it sounds like Robert Rittner for 13 hours did nothing but present error. Many people will hold to their own views no matter what they encounter. Wait a second. Is this a self-description he's giving to us now? Is he confessing his sins? Many people will hold to their own views no matter what they encounter, but some really are trying to see their way through the myriad smoke and mirrors they are being presented with. Pardon the dangling participle. For their sakes, for the audience's sakes, for those who are really trying to find truth and understand what is what, it seems worth presenting another side, or at least making an attempt to fan away some of the smoke. So, of course, this is the smoke that Robert Rittner has blown over the scene. These are the mists of darkness that are causing difficulty to those who are holding fast or doing the best they can to hold fast to the iron rod of the Book of Abraham. So, he wants to respond. He thinks it's important to respond because there are some in the audience that are really trying to find out what it is that Robert Rittner said is wrong and what Carrie Muhlstein and John Gee will say is right. Going on. I also have a great desire to come to greater clarity and understanding of the book of Abraham. Parentheses, right? Parentheses, but only if that greater clarity and understanding confirms the conclusion that Kerry Muelstein has already started out with, which is that the book of Abraham is true. I'm not making that up. He has said as much in public as part of a lecture. That he gave it a presentation that he starts with the conclusion that the book of abraham is true and then he works backward and makes all the evidence fit his predetermined conclusion there is much to learn he writes there is much to learn and i believe that if we do it the right way we can make real advances well (laughs) i think we know what the right way is right the right way is the mormon way the right way is the book of abraham way and the right way is that the book of abraham is true way It is not always easy to take a mess and turn it into something worthwhile. Oh, my gosh. He's really calling our interview with Robert Rittner a mess. It is not always easy to take a mess and turn it into something worthwhile. Yet in this case, I think it's worth the effort. Well, thank you so much, Kerry Muelstein. But in this case, I think it's worth the effort. And I am optimistic that if many parties are willing, how many parties is many? I mean, we're talking about John Gee. We're talking about Kerry Muelstein and we're talking about Robert Rittner, that sounds like three to me. I don't know, maybe that's what he means by many. Maybe he means somebody else. Together, he says, together we can find success if many parties are willing. And actually, when he says many parties, I'm starting to think he's talking less about the actual participants, i.e. the Egyptologists, and more about Kerry Muelstein's masters, the ones who say whether he can participate or whether he cannot participate, i.e., Church leaders, the ones who sign his paychecks. For example, he goes on, for example, some of the podcasts have addressed ancient Egyptian aspects of the facsimiles in the book of Abraham. Yes, we did that. We went in depth through each and every one of the three facsimiles. A lot of good scholarship has been exhibited when discussing the Egyptological interpretations of those drawings. And I find that discussion to be fruitful. Well, I guess he's talking about the discussions that show that Joseph Smith did not know what he was doing when he was interpreting the facsimiles. But I will bet you dollars to donuts that when Cary Muhlstein says a lot of good scholarship has been exhibited when discussing the interpretations of those drawings, what he means is the four sons of Horus and the earth in its four quarters, i.e., he finds the discussion to be fruitful when it aligns with his belief that the book of Abraham is true. Yet, yet the valid data is then applied to the topic at hand based on a misunderstanding of what Latter-day Saint scholars believe or have said. Well, really, all that was said was that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian. He didn't know the first thing about Egyptian. What difference does it make, in my mind, what Latter-day Saint scholars believe or have said? Who cares what they believe or have said? All we're talking about is the papyrus, the facsimiles, and that they are not interpreted correctly. I think what he's saying is we haven't dealt meaningfully with all the excuses that Latter-day Saint scholars have given for the fact that the translation does not match the papyrus. He goes on, in such a case, we end up with good data and problematic application of it. Well, this is the whole deal, Carrie. Just come on, tell us what you mean, why it is that you think the data is good and why you think the application of it is problematic. That's all you have to do. You could do it here, but you're not even going to do it here. This is a non-response response. This response is saying why they're not going to respond. Or if they do respond, it will not be in public. It will not be with Dr. Rittner. It will not be where they can be held to account for their views. Instead, it will be something in writing that's going to be a long time coming. Believe you me. But he does say, and I want to give him credit for this next part. He does say, after saying that there's a problematic application of the good data that was presented in the podcast, he says, this must be at least partially the fault of Latter-day Saints scholars. Apparently, we need to do a better job of communicating what we think about these things. No, Carrie, no. It is not... The problem isn't that you're doing a bad job of communicating what you believe about these things. The problem is that what you communicate is absolutely balderdash. That's the problem. Don't sit here and think that we're not understanding what you're saying because believe me, we are picking up on what you are laying down. The problem is that what you are laying down in your application of this data is ridiculous. It makes no sense and it doesn't change the fact that the interpretations given by Joseph Smith do not match the papyri or the facsimiles. He goes on, hopefully, hopefully a dialogue can be struck. Well, that sounds like violent language, Carrie. Hopefully a dialogue can be struck where we learn from one another rather than talk past one another. And of course, the solution he's gonna come up with is not learning from one another where we actually talk to each other and with each other. He's gonna propose it be done in writing and therefore it will ensure that we continue to talk past one another. Until then, online communications will inevitably present somewhat meaningless sides of a discussion on different trajectories. Carrie, that's not inevitable. Carrie, this is an excuse for why it is that you are scared to come on the podcast and actually talk to Dr. Rittner. This much is becoming quite transparent, in spite of all your protestations. To the contrary, misrepresentations of points of view, even unintentionally, can only lead to misinformation." Well, that's why you get the invitation to come on the show so that you can tell us where we have misrepresented your point of view and settle the matter, not wait for years for you to put something in writing. Further, he goes on, further, he has a lot to say about absolutely nothing here. Further, presumably because of the difficulty of delving into complex matters in simple forms, only after partial information is conveyed. Is that a sentence? It ends with a period. Let me try it again. Further, presumably because of the difficulty of delving into complex matters in simple forms, often only partial information is conveyed. Okay, that is a complete sentence. Now I understand it. He's saying because it's a simple form, the information presented will be incomplete. (laughs) Well, I would say incomplete information is something that is the hallmark of Carrie Muelstein, and John Gee even in a written form. This is what all of their writings about the book of Abraham consist of is partial information and deliberately partial information with the part they don't want you to know deliberately withheld by them. But in a form, see if it's in writing and you're reading it in a journal or in a book, in a form that you cannot ask them any follow-up questions or for clarification or say, hey, what about this important fact that contradicts your thesis? Why didn't you include that or deal with it? Carrie... This is like Kerry Muehlstein's recent presentation at the Fair Mormon Conference within the past month, where he got up and gave a presentation about the history of Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Abraham. And he wanted it all to fit his particular theory, which is that the translation was received by Revelation and had nothing to do with the Abraham Egyptian papers. And at the same time, he is studiously ignoring a whole host of other data points that contradict his theory. But he's presenting at a fair Mormon conference where he's not going to be held to account. I actually sent in a question to call him to account, which he managed to avoid answering because he knows what he's doing. He knows he's hiding facts and he is insistent that nobody is going to call him on it. If Kerry Muelstein were on a podcast with me, I would be able to hold his feet to the fire and insist that he answer the question that I am asking. Obviously, this is a prospect that Kerry Muhlstein does not relish. He goes on, This, combined with the problems outlined in the previous paragraph, leads to discussion that can be misleading for the audience and yet seems so convincing. If we are misleading the audience, Kerry, as you continue to insinuate, it is your job, no, it is your duty, damn it, as an Egyptologist to come on the air and correct us on anything that we say, that is misleading, not to simply write an essay that goes up on the interpreter yesterday, which outlines a number of excuses as to why it is that you refuse to do the obvious thing, the right thing, but unfortunately, the thing that you are scared of doing and makes you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking about coming on live with us and Dr. Rittner. I will use one example. Well, this is gonna be helpful. I will use one example. In one recent podcast, Joseph Smith was attacked. Okay, look, we're not attacking Joseph Smith. I know you like to use that verb because it feeds into your persecution complex and helps you present to others that you are defending someone who's being unjustly attacked. He's not being attacked. All we're saying is he couldn't translate Egyptian like he said he could. In one recent podcast, Joseph Smith was attacked for what the guest felt. By the way, the guest is Dr. Robert Rittner, of the Oriel Institute at the University of Chicago. He is not just the guest, okay, Carrie? You can use his name. Say the name, Carrie. Joseph Smith was attacked for what the guest felt was an inaccurate reconstruction of a missing part of a drawing on a papyrus. I think here he's talking about facsimile one and the head of the priest of Pharaoh, as it is incorrectly interpreted. The debated point is whether a now-missing depiction of a head should have been of a human head or the head of the Egyptian god Anubis. If that part of the papyrus were already missing, then Joseph Smith seems to have directed the engraver of the facsimile to depict the figure with a human head. Although we cannot be positive even on that point, You see how he fades back into this area of we just can't know stuff. We can't know stuff because if we actually know stuff, then Joseph Smith is going to look like he couldn't translate Egyptian. In the podcast, Kerry goes on, in the podcast it was stated that this is not how such depictions were drawn. And thus, Joseph Smith was inaccurate. Well, that's true because the depictions always are of Anubis. He should have a jackal's head, not a human head. At the same time, there were several things which were not stated in the podcast. Well, you see, this is why you should come on the show so you can state them, Carrie. For example, the glue marks suggest that the part of the drawing in question, which is missing now, was not always missing. It is quite possible, perhaps even probable, that it was actually in place when Joseph Smith first had the papyri, and that the facsimile was based on what he had actually seen At one point. Okay, so what he's trying to say here is that actually when Joseph Smith had this papyri that had facsimile one in it, that that part that's now missing was not missing at that point and that the part that was not missing actually did contain the head of that figure and that it actually had a human head and not the head of Anubis. This is malarkey, Carrie, and you know it's malarkey. There is no picture on any other papyrus that even comes close to resembling facsimile one and it is a common vignette. And you know this too. There is no other vignette of that type that has a human head on that body. It is going to be Anubis pretty much every time. And if it's not Anubis, maybe it's Horus with a hawk head. It doesn't have a human head. You know this, Carrie. But he's trying to say, well, we don't know because there was a papyrus there. And maybe it was there when Joseph Smith had it. And if it has glue marks there, then maybe it was there. And so the production of Facsimile one actually shows a human head there. But that human head was really on the papyrus. That's what he's trying to get at. This is bull, carry, bull, and you know it. It does not fit any of the known evidence. He says, further, we cannot tell the extent, once again, fading into this backdrop of we can't know, there's so many things we don't know, we can't prove that Joseph Smith was a fraud because there's so many things we don't know. Further, we cannot tell the extent to which Reuben Headlock, the artist, was acting on Joseph Smith's instruction and how much was his own initiative. I'm going to have to call you on that, Carrie. See, if you were here on the podcast, I could call you on this to your face and then you could respond. But this is bull crap. Once again, this is exactly what they're saying about all the depictions in church art of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon where he doesn't have his head in the hat. No, he's looking at the gold plates. He's focusing on the gold plates. He is interpreting from the gold plates while looking at them in spite of the historical record that shows, no, he was doing anything but that. And when it comes to light that Joseph Smith was actually translating the Book of Mormon by putting his face in the hat and not looking at the plates, then what does the church do? They blame the artists. They say these are rogue artists out there coming up with these crazy ideas of how Joseph Smith translated the plates. These were not sanctioned by the church. This is not what the church told them to do. This is not something that went through correlation at about five different levels and made to match exactly what the church leaders wanted the artists to depict. No, the excuse is that these artists were off, they're doing their own thing, and the church and the church leaders cannot be held responsible for what the artists are doing. This is exactly the same argument that Carry Mulestein is making about the artist, Reuben Headlock, who did the lead plates from which the facsimiles were printed. He's saying, well, we don't know that Joseph Smith told him to put a human head on this figure. Maybe Reuben Headlock just did that on his own. You know, he's off there doing it on, on his own and Joseph Smith doesn't know anything about it, even though he's the editor of the Times and Seasons in 1842, when Facsimile 1 is actually published in its pages. Come on, Carrie. You can do better than this. Further, he goes on. In the same podcast, it was pointed out that there are a number of unique features about this particular drawing. Oh my God. Now he's going to go back into this whole idea of, hey, there's unique features about the drawing. It's unlike in some little respects, other known examples of the same kind of vignette. And therefore, because there are different things in it, then maybe it could be Any kind of reconstruction, maybe it could be a human head there. I mean, there's something else over here that's different than these other vignettes. Maybe it could have a human head, even though none of the other vignettes have a human head and they all have jackal heads. Further, in the same podcast, it was pointed out that there are a number of unique features about this particular drawing, not all of which the guest or host pointed out. Well, that's why you should be here, Carrie, so you can point them out for us. Please educate us. Obviously, we need it. Pardon me while I get my drool cup. It seems logically inconsistent to dictate that one unknown part of the papyrus must conform to known drawings when other known parts of the papyrus clearly do not. In fact, a good scholarly treatment of this vignette should admit that there are enough unusual things about it that we cannot honestly claim that we fully understand what is going on with it. Once again, Carrie, you're wrong you're wrong, and you know you're wrong. You're making an argument that is based upon, oh, we just don't know, when actually we do know. We do know what is going on in that picture. Now, let's be clear. There can be a disagreement among Egyptologists as to what is going on in this picture. It could be Osiris being raised up from death. At the same time, he is impregnating his wife, Isis, who is in the form of a falcon sitting upon his erect penis. That is one thing it could mean, depending upon how it is reconstructed. And that is one view of a large number of Egyptologists. There is a second view that actually it is Anubis, the god of the dead, who is protecting and embalming and blessing the dead body of Osiris. It could be one thing or it could be the other. Egyptologists do disagree based upon the state of the papyrus, which does have some parts missing, as to which of those things is being represented in this vignette. But carry what Egyptologists do not agree on, what no non-Mormon Egyptologist believes, is that this vignette represents Abraham being sacrificed on an altar by a priest of Pharaoh and the angel of God coming down from heaven in order to save him. No Egyptologist who is not a Mormon believes that that is anywhere near an accurate reconstruction of this vignette. So if you were to look at this as a Venn diagram, way down here in the bottom left quadrant, you have a relatively small circle of interpretations of this vignette that competent Egyptologists, non-Mormon Egyptologists at least, understand this representation to be. But way over here in the upper right quadrant is another very small circle that John Gee and Kerry Muhlstein believe this vignette represents. That's the sacrifice of Abraham. The problem with Kerry Muehlstein's argument is he wants to take those two circles, which are completely separated and in opposite corners of this Venn diagram, and pretend that actually they're not separated, they actually overlap, at least to some degree, and that there is some agreement between non-Mormon Egyptologists and Mormon Egyptologists, such as Carrie Muelstein, as to what this vignette represents. When that is not, repeat, not the case. Nice try, Carrie. It's not going to fly. This kind of argument is not going to fly, whether you say it publicly on a podcast or whether you write it on a blog. It's still the same old hogwash. He then goes on with his argument about, well, you know, this was a priest who was wearing a jackal head. And so really when a human head was put on the figure instead of the jackal head, it's really just showing the priest himself, which is what he would have looked like without the jackal head. Additionally, whether originally the drawing depicted Anubis' jackal head, which it did carry and you know it, or the head of a human, which it didn't carry and you know it, it would have been understood that the role being performed would have been performed by a priest. Wait a second... That's not true, Carrie. That unequivocal statement that you just made, that it would have been understood that this was being performed by a priest, is not true. Now, in some circumstances, it could have been understood that way, but it would most likely have been understood that it was being performed by, guess what, Anubis, the god of the dead, not a priest, Anubis himself. He goes on, perhaps it was a priest representing Anubis, but a priest nonetheless, Wrong again, Carrie. Thus, if that piece of papyrus were missing when Joseph Smith first acquired it, and if he said it should be reconstructed to depict a priest, such a reconstruction would be accurate to the meaning of the drawing, which would be remarkable in and of itself. Oh, jeez, Carrie, come on. Really? You really think that would be remarkable? That there's a piece missing from the papyrus on top of a human body, and so a human head is put on top of it? And that's somehow remarkable. Actually, it's remarkable only in that it's completely wrong and it should have been a jackal head. And I think you know that, Carrie. Moreover, he goes on, we do not know, once again, focusing on what we don't know, this is Carrie Muelstein's M.O., if you hadn't noticed. Moreover, we do not know if Joseph Smith was intending to provide us with what this would have been like anciently, i.e., if it's really a recreation of what it would have looked like originally, or if he was trying to provide us with what we should derive from it spiritually in our day. Okay, hang on a second. This is important because Kerry Muhlstein is right here trying to float the catalyst theory. Let me read it again. He is actually saying that maybe Joseph Smith did not restore what it looked like originally, but what he's restoring is what we are supposed to understand about it today, i.e. there's no connection between Joseph Smith's restoration and what it was anciently. It's only what God inspired Joseph Smith to provide for us to know for our day. I'm going to read it to you again because this is important. And by the way, David Bakavoy comments on this very passage in his blog, which I'm going to read to you in closing here in a couple of minutes. Moreover, he says, we do not know if Joseph Smith was intending to provide us with what this would have been like anciently or if he was trying to provide us with what we should derive from it spiritually in our day. Shades of the Catalyst Theory. We just don't have enough data to know. Oh my God. How long has this guy been studying Egyptology? It seems like there's a lot more he doesn't know than he does know which is very different, by the way, from my conversation with Dr. Robert Rittner. He seemed to know a lot more things than he didn't know. We just don't have enough data to know if the prophet engaged in reconstructing this depiction and if he did, why he did so, or the relationship between their original context and their new one. Nor do we know enough about the intent of the original creators of the depiction. There is too little data to reach any firm conclusions on this point. Well, yeah, except for the conclusion that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian, which is what the whole 13 hours with Dr. Robert Rittner was about, and a point which you are studiously avoiding mentioning in your blog post, Carrie, I've got to say. Thus, while on the podcast, it was spoken of as if this were a simple, open-and-shut case, even the brief and simplistic treatment provided here should be enough to demonstrate that this issue is not so simple, and it is anything But closed. Well, except for the issue that Joseph Smith couldn't translate Egyptian to save his soul. I believe it misrepresents the complexity and richness of the vignette and the possible ways Joseph Smith interacts with it. Once again, Carrie, your creative imagination can run wild. That's fine by me. You can believe whatever you want. But the one way that Joseph Smith interacted with this vignette that is now firmly off the table is that he was actually translating the Egyptian or correctly interpreting the meaning of the vignette. That's the one thing we know. He did not. Do. But Carrie wants to say there's all these things that we don't know, and so who knows? Maybe he was translating it correctly, or maybe God gave him the correct translation, or maybe this, or maybe that, or maybe some other damn thing. That is what passes for scholarship in your neck of the woods, Carrie? Okay, well, I guess you do teach at BYU. My apologies for any of my listeners who are graduates from that prestigious. University. He goes on, this kind of thing happens again and again in these forums. And the reader needs to be aware that they are not being given the whole picture. Well, that's actually not a reader in these forums because it's a listener or a viewer in these forums. But he says reader, probably just by reflex. And the reader needs to be aware that they are not being given the whole picture. Well, kind of like when you write your papers, Carrie. Jeez, it just seems like when you're pointing a finger at us, three fingers are pointing back at you glass houses, Carrie? This is a shame, he says, wagging his finger and saying, "Tisk tisk. This is a shame because an exciting and beautiful discourse could be had about this subject if the involved parties were willing to really engage. Hang on. Hang on, Carrie. We are willing to really engage. Robert Ridner is willing to really engage. You are the one who is not willing to really engage. So the shame, if any shame there be, is solely on you and on John Gee. Once again, he said, This is a shame because an exciting and beautiful discourse could be had about this subject if the involved parties were willing to really engage. We could all have our understanding expanded. Instead, what is currently happening is misleading for listeners. Okay, how many times can you say it's misleading without ever once coming on board and explaining to us and our audience why? It's misleading, Carrie. The invitation has been made, and I want to be clear about this. This invitation was made to you, Carrie, and also to John Gee. And we also put in there that you could determine when it would happen. Well, of course, it has to match Robert Rittner's schedule and other schedules have to be taken into account. But we're not dictating that you got to meet us on such and such a day at high noon. Otherwise, you don't get a chance to talk. You get to determine the schedule. You get to determine the forum. You get to determine all the terms of the discussion or the debate in the podcast. All of that was in the letter to you, but none of that is good enough for you because you don't want to come on at any time or in any form of discourse, even though you get to choose it. Any terms of discussion, even though you get to choose those as well, you're not going to do that, even though you're accusing us and Dr. Rittner, by the way, of misleading the listeners to the podcast. It's good to know you have the courage of your convictions, at least, Carrie. Again, this is the inherent flaw in the kind of podcast that have been produced of late. It is not a form that lends itself to truly complex matters. And delving into the ancient world and modern revelation is inevitably a complex undertaking. Well, it's a complex undertaking because you have to make it complex in order to account for the fact that Joseph Smith's translations do not match the facsimiles or the papyrus. I think that much is clear by now. Kerry Muelstein, making the simple complex since 1978. He goes on, this is all the more so when all the participants are bent on coming to the same conclusion. Now I've got to take issue with you there too, Carrie, because time after time I presented your apologetic responses to Dr. Rittner in order to get his reaction to them. I did that. I did not leave the apologetic element out of this or without a voice on the podcast, even though you are chicken to come on and actually bring them up yourself. I did it myself and we got his responses. Now, I don't think you appreciated his response. I don't think you'd agree with his response, but we did do that. And in fact, I came up with new, new apologetic ideas based upon the book of Abraham and the Abraham Egyptian papers, ideas that you have not come up with, but ideas that I came up with, which tend to possibly show an ancient origin. And here I'm talking about the theophoric suffix of men which occurs not only in the scroll of Tearshot Men, who is actually an Egyptian woman whose scroll it was that Joseph Smith had, and probably the mummy too, but Joseph Smith's translation of the scroll, where he comes up with the name of a woman who has the same theophoric suffix of Men, except her name, according to Joseph Smith, is Katu Men. I brought that up. I did. Radio Free Mormon. By the way, you can use that idea in future publications, but you need to give me a footnote. Okay, that's the deal. That's how scholarship works. That's what being an honest scholar looks like. Thus, he goes on, thus one should be very, very careful. Two varies. About how much stock should be put in a communication that is taking place in a medium that is not capable of handling the nature of the communication. Oh my gosh. So basically what Kerry is saying is this is too complex for it to be done on podcasts. Even if we allow you to speak as much as you want, even if we give you all the time you want, even if we allow you to determine the terms of the discussion. Nope, not going to happen. Too complex. Wouldn't be prudent. As a result of this and other issues, my gosh, how much can he say about the same thing? As a result of this and other issues, many of the online communications about the book of Abraham have been deeply problematic. For my own research purposes, I have listed Dozens of examples of places where incorrect information, unstated incorrect assumptions, mischaracterization of arguments, and withholding of information, whoa, withholding of information, et tu, Brute, withholding of information or evidence was rampant. I have also listed many places where participants said incorrect things about colleagues. These are things that I personally know were just wrong. As someone with in-depth knowledge about the issues and the people, he's talking about himself and John Gee and maybe even Dan Peterson, I found the miscommunications and misinformation that were in these podcasts to be disappointing. Oh, that's too bad. He's disappointed. Yet, I do not want to turn this essay into something problematic either. So here he's going to say, after calling Dr. Rittner and these interviews on this podcast, all sorts of names. It has low discourse. It's misleading to the audience. And now he's just talked about all the mischaracterizations and everything. But now he's going to say, but I'm going to take the high road. Okay, after slamming after slamming Dr. Rittner in the podcast, I'm going to take the high road. Yeah, nice tactic, Carrie. I saw what you did there. Yet, I do not want to turn this essay into something problematic either, so I will instead put my efforts into creating the kind of careful, systematic writing that can advance the field. See, here's where he's going to get to the writing. I won't talk. I'm just going to write. I will just push forward in good research, which he's known for, by the way, far and wide among his colleagues. Just ask Kara Cooney. I will just push forward in good research. For those who are patient, okay, here's where he gets to the patient. You're just gonna have to wait. We're gonna respond. This is a response that we're making here on the interpreter website on August 26, 2020. But our response is that you're gonna have to be patient to get our response because we're putting it in writing. We're not doing any damn podcasts. I will just push forward in good research. For those who are patient, such good research will carry us through. So sorry, if you want to go on a podcast, it's your fault. You're just too impatient. Many of the arguments in these online forums can sound very convincing. Well, yeah, there's a reason for that, Carrie, because they are convincing. Hello, McFly. Many of the arguments in these online forums can sound very convincing. Guests and hosts can create an online echo chamber in which they self-reinforce circular arguments, unnoticed assumptions, and mischaracterization of others' arguments. And then self-congratulate one another on their conclusions. I think that's redundant. Self-congratulate one another? Okay, that's what he wrote. And then self-congratulate one another on their conclusions in a way that seems so very convincing. Carrie, how many times do I have to say this? This is why we gave you the opportunity and invitation to come on so you could express your views and correct us where we got things wrong. Correct Dr. Rittner where he got things wrong. For some reason, you got a million and one excuses why you don't want to do that. And I'm not buying any of them. To the trained and informed observer, many of the arguments that the involved parties paint as being so convincing are instead immediately, obviously, deeply, problematic. Wow, that's three adjectives. (laughs) Wow, that's three adjectives. Immediately, obviously, deeply, problematic. Well, why don't you come on the show and tell us about it, Carrie? Huh? Quit hiding. Quit being a little Nancy. To be fair, he says, some reasonable and important points have also been raised but of course he's not going to tell us what those are. But at least he's trying to sound reasonable. That's a plus. And if we were to change the discourse so that we conduct the discussion according to high academic standards in an academic venue, I believe that together we could make true scholarly progress. Yet most points raised online have been overly full of intellectual fallacies, mischaracterization of the issues, bad underlying assumptions, and circular arguments. Well, I'm certainly glad you're going to take the high road in this essay, Carrie. I anticipate, my lord, how much, I'm, I mean, I'm actually losing power on my iPhone reading this thing. Okay, I'm going to try and go quicker. It's just amazing. I think that he thinks that he's like a lawyer. He's going to be paid by the word or something. I anticipate that as time goes on, lots of time, by the way, Lots of time. Years and years, in fact, until you forget this unfortunate episode with Dr. Rittner ever happened. I anticipate that as time goes on, these will be discussed in an appropriate and reasonable fashion. This will happen over the course of time. And for some audiences, it is crucial that they know now that the self-congratulatory echo chambers they may have encountered are not all that they seem. Further, a sad aspect of these online communications has been the efforts to just be dismissive of those who hold opposing points of view. Okay, this is where it really gets under his skin because his apologetics have been questioned. And in fact, he's been called out as being a freaking liar for what he said the Leiden manuscript said about Abraham being on the lying couch when it's not what it says and he knows damn good and well it's not but he's going to take offense at it anyway. Instead of saying, hey, I'm sorry, I got it wrong, I misspoke, let me correct the record, no, he's going to double down and he's going to play, yep, the victim card. Further, a sad aspect of these online communications has been the efforts to just be dismissive of those who hold opposing points of view. Those who say that scholars, such as myself or John Gee, are pseudo-Egyptologists. I don't think anybody said they were a pseudo-Egyptologist. I mean, they're real Egyptologists. They have real degrees in Egyptology from accredited universities. It's just that they choose to use their powers for evil instead of good. Once again, those who say that scholars such as myself or John Gee are pseudo-Egyptologists or only have a patina or patina of scholarship. Nobody said that either. I don't think the word patina came up at all. Well, maybe it did. Maybe maybe Robert Rittner said that. I think maybe he did. A patent of scholarship. Well, if the shoe fits wear it carry, have either completely failed to do their homework, or have willingly misconstrued the truth, presumably to help further their agendas. By my own quick, rough count, John Gee has edited three academic books. Well, he's gonna talk about John Gee now. It's pretty obvious that Carrie Mulestein is now rushing to John Gee's defense. He's gonna protect John Gee's honor, even though John Gee apparently cannot be bothered to write anything in his own defense himself. John Gee has edited three academic books, has served as the editor for a respected Egyptological journal. That's the one he got fired from in Canada, I believe, has published over 20 peer-reviewed articles in respected Egyptological or ancient Near Eastern journals, many of which are truly top tier, has published many of which are truly top tier. Well, I guess not all of them are many of them are, that's good, has published 12 articles in peer-reviewed and highly respected academic conference proceedings and 11 peer-reviewed articles as chapters in respected academic books. He has authored many Egyptological entries for various academic encyclopedias. He has also been asked to serve in various capacities for several respected academic and Egyptological organizations. For example, he was the only North American affiliate of the Totenbuch Project, Book of the Dead Project, I can read German too, at the University of Bonn. He was a visiting scholar at the University of Heidelberg. He has given dozens and dozens of lectures at academic Egyptological conferences. This is all without saying anything about the other areas he researches and publishes in. Oh, you mean like that book on sociology he published recently that just got pulled from Deseret Books, that book? Ha, too bad you didn't mention that. Are you still hiding information, Carrie? Just like with the Book of Abraham, looks like it. To call him a pseudo-Egyptologist, Once again, I don't remember anybody calling him a pseudo-Egyptologist. Maybe somebody did say that. A pseudo-Egyptologist or say he has only a patent of scholarship is very incorrect. Okay, it's not just incorrect. It's very incorrect. Thanks for clearing that up, Carrie. I do not wish to speculate as to why such knowingly inaccurate statements were made, but I find them shockingly disingenuous, which is a nice way of saying that we are lying. Once again, he's taking the high road, but he's doing it for a good cause. He's protecting now not just the book of Abraham, but protecting John Gee who protects the book of Abraham. I do not wish to go through a similar litany for myself, i.e., modesty forbids him. It is not my place to do so. Well, why not? Why not tell us all your great things that you do? I mean, you list a ton of them in your signature on your email that goes out to everybody. My profile is on academia.edu for those who wish to see that I, too, am an active and participating Egyptologist. One cannot be intellectually honest and informed and describe my scholarship the way these online forums have attempted to do so. Are you ever going to acknowledge that you lied about the Leiden manuscript? That's all I want to know, (laughs) Kerry. I guess this is actually why he doesn't want to come on the podcast, because uncomfortable questions may be asked. It just makes the statement seem silly to those who are informed. It is an example of the kind of low-level discourse that scholars avoid because they are trying to truly deal with arguments, not win them at the cost of truth. So now apparently he's calling Dr. Robert Rittner, the most prestigious Egyptologist in the Western Hemisphere, as someone who is not really a scholar. Notice what he said. It is an example of the kind of low-level discourse that scholars avoid because they are trying to truly deal with arguments, not win them at the cost of truth. So, Robert Rittner is not really a scholar and he's a liar, but he objects to John Gee being called a (laughs) pseudo-Egyptologist. Double standard much, Kerry? I wish to re-emphasize... Oh my God, has he not emphasized these things enough yet? Okay, I wish to re-emphasize that I am not saying that there is nothing of value in these podcasts, nor that every idea raised in them should be ignored. Rather, it is to say that those things that are of value should be stated in an appropriate academic venue, where an appropriate response could be made, i.e., out of the public light and years down the road. I trust that in the days to come, many of the reasonable issues that have been raised about the Book of Abraham will be dealt with in proper academic fashion. By the way, by the way, Robert Rittner has raised these issues For years and years now, he raised them in 2014 with his essay in response to the church's essay about the translation of the book of Abraham. And years before that, he raised them in a book that he published dealing in depth with the Abraham Egyptian papers and the translations that Joseph Smith purportedly made of the book of Abraham. There's really nothing critical of the book of Abraham That was new, with perhaps the exception of the lead plate for facsimile three. That was new that was raised in the podcast, but they have not responded to these. They've been aware of these. John Gee and Carrie Muelstein have been aware of these for years and years, but they have not responded. In fact, if we recall correctly, John Gee was asked at the end of his presentation at 2018 Fair Mormon Conference if he planned on responding to Robert Rittner's essay, and he basically said, who cares? He thought it was in poor taste. So they know about them, but they haven't responded. They've ignored them. But now, Now, apparently, the podcast has brought these issues to such a public awareness that now they're saying they're finally going to have to get off their high knees and actually do something about it. But what they're going to do is not come on the podcast and actually talk about it in public. Instead, they're going to spend years writing something. In fact, he says, I have gained a number of insights as I have listened to these podcasts. Well, he's not going to tell us what those are either. Some of them have come as the result of good research. I don't know if he's talking about me there. Maybe he's talking about men. M-I-N, the theophoric suffix. While I often do not agree with how the data has been interpreted and I have identified incorrect assumptions that have led to these misinterpretations, nonetheless, some of the accurate information and accurate conclusions have helped me learn and come to my own new conclusions and better understandings. Well, good for you, Carrie. That's really, really heartening to know. Yet, God, he just goes on and on. Yet, as we think of these podcasts and attempting to turn them into something that is trustworthy and useful, i.e., something that's not a podcast, We must keep in mind that high-level academic discourse is slow, kind of like the way John Gee talks. High-level academic discourse is slow. It requires detailed and painstaking research. Haven't you done that by now, Carrie? Come on. Careful writing so you can slant the evidence and hide the truth. Review and revision. Review and revision, then editorial and peer review. There is no peer review at BYU. You know that, Carrie. Come on. John Gee has actually written an article talking about why peer review is a bad thing. Further revision, further review, editing, typesetting, more review, and finally, publication. Man, he really doesn't want to come on the show. The others can respond, then others can respond in kind. So what he's saying is, wait for years, we're going to write something up, hopefully you'll forget about it in the meantime, we'll write something up, we'll we'll publish it, and then Robert Rittner can spend years and years writing something to respond to that, and hopefully by then, Carrie's thinking, Robert Rittner will die of kidney failure. That's the long-term plan. And that is in a process where no problems are encountered. So in other words, it could be longer than that. The review process hopefully helps identify bad assumptions. Well, it hasn't for you. Misinterpretations, ditto, etc. Though it is not perfect in doing so, it is exactly this lengthy process which raises the chances that the information is viewed by many qualified individuals as being methodologically sound, and that unseemly discourse is avoided. It does not ensure that everything meets the highest standards. Well, yeah, that's true. You've proven it. And not all publications go through this whole process. You mean like this blog that you wrote at the Interpreter? Further, mistakes will inevitably creep in. Still, this process greatly increases the chances of good scholarship delivered in suitable rhetoric. It also allows for proper academic rebuttals that can help correct mistakes and advance knowledge appropriately. So what he's saying is, not going to come on the show, not going to talk with Robert Rittner, not going to put myself in that danger where I can be exposed as being deceptive and misleading. Instead, he's going to say it's going to take years and years and years for us to produce something and then years and years and years for Robert Rittner to produce something and by then, hopefully... Everybody who knows about this will have either forgotten about it or died. Once again, he says this means that reliable responses to new arguments will be slow in coming. These are not new arguments, Carrie. He's been making these for years. These have been around for freaking decades. The ones with the facsimiles have been around for 100 years. The ones with the papyrus have been around since the 1960s. These are not new arguments. Once again, he's being deceptive even here in this blog. But his deception has a purpose, which it usually does, which is he's explaining why it is that he's not going to come on the podcast. Not because he's scared to, but because this is what academics do do this means that reliable responses to new arguments will be slow in coming i can only ask that those who really want to know the truth will be patient for years and years and years i added the years part that those who really want to know the truth will be patient as they wait for such response and dialogue in the meantime hopefully everyone will forget about it no he says in the meantime hopefully this essay will assure them that it is worth waiting through true research that has already been published on both sides and waiting patiently for further worthwhile research in the future. I believe that a lot of good scholarship has been produced in the last decade or more, by which he means his scholarship, of course, and that more is on the horizon, by which he means his scholarship, of course. I also believe that even parties with diametrically opposed points of view can have a measured, honorable, and productive dialogue that will benefit both groups, but not on podcasts. If they maintain high rhetoric, which apparently cannot happen on a podcast. I think he's already said that. I hope that we can turn the recent spate of online information into a real dialogue. While the invitation is out there, the doors open, the red carpet's laid out, the table is set, but you're just not showing up to the party, Carrie. I am convinced that I can learn from those who have different viewpoints from mine. No, you're not, Carrie. Not when it comes to the book of Abraham and you know it. Any viewpoint, okay, any viewpoint that concludes that the book of Abraham is not authentic is a viewpoint from which you've already stated that you can learn nothing. Maybe in areas that are not related to the book of Abraham and its authenticity, you can learn things. Sure, I think that's great. But really, when it comes to the book of Abraham, your mind is closed, sealed and nailed shut. I am equally convinced that if they will really take my research seriously, that it can aid them in their desires for accurate information. So in other words, if you'll believe all the claptrap I put out there about the book of Abraham, you can benefit from that as well. Done correctly, this can be a scholarly dialogue that moves us forward in a worthwhile way as long as it takes years to do it and means that I don't actually have to come on a podcast and have my feet held to the fire. In the meantime, this is the second time you started a sentence with in the meantime. In the meantime, I feel that the truth-seeking audience should know that there are many things that have been said about scholars, their methods, their motives, and their abilities that I believe are wildly inaccurate. I wonder who he's talking about. In future days, I will be seeking for the appropriate venue and tone to address such matters. Well, we're all on tenor hooks wondering what that venue will be. Obviously, it won't be a podcast where he actually has to talk to Robert Rittner. Similarly, many will seek for fitting venues for productive discussions regarding both the good ideas and the faulty assumptions and misinformation that has been conveyed. Once again, Carrie, I take the high road, Muelstein. The hope is that this can take place in a way that is helpful for all involved to really come to clarity. In connection with this, Okay, we're actually to the last two paragraphs. My God, how long has this been going on? F me. In connection with this, may I express my hope for how such things will be done in the future? Let us try to address these issues in a scholarly and noble way. Let us avoid trying to cloud the issues by attacking people. And may we especially be honest and fair in what we say about people. (laughs) Well, he certainly hasn't been attacking anybody in this blog post of his, this essay that he wrote at The Interpreter, has he? So, it sounds like Kerry might be just being a wee bit hypocritical. And it's rich that he accuses Robert Rittner of trying to cloud the issues. Let us use a high register of rhetoric and discourse. Let us attempt to publicly identify our assumptions and address them. Let us try to honestly listen to the scholarly communications of each other with open minds. Because obviously, if you don't agree with Kerry Mulstein about the Book of Abraham, you're just not honest. Let us accurately represent the arguments of others. And then, and then, let us discourse with each other in a way that can help us all advance our state of understanding. There are ways to do this, and I hope we will. I believe we have nothing to fear, except coming on a podcast. (laughs) Oh, somebody, stop me. There are ways to do this, and I hope we will. I believe we have nothing to fear and nothing to hide, except all the evidence that contradicts your thesis that the book of Abraham is ancient. Right. Other than that, there's nothing to hide, Carrie. True academic discourse can move us forward. To the lay audience, and finally, we're on his final paragraph. Oh, my God. To the lay audience, I urge both patience and wisdom. The sound and fury of the online discourse of recent days typically yields only froth. In each, there are real currents that can move us forward, but those currents are almost completely covered by a foamy lather that has only air and no substance in it. I assure you that over time, I and others will carefully pick our way through the much ado that has been made and find the real nuggets that are worth moving forward in a more appropriate, scholarly, and effective way. And I'm guessing that those real nuggets, as he defines them, are the nuggets that he thinks prove the Book of Abraham true. In the meantime, that's the third sentence he started with in the meantime. I'm not thinking this got reviewed very carefully. In the meantime, a great deal of worthwhile research has already been done. That would be the research that's on Fair Mormon. And by the way, they posted a Fair Mormon yesterday a brief essay talking about all the different essays that they have put up and linking to them in support of the book of Abraham. See, this is a multi-pronged approach. These didn't appear on the same day at Fair Mormon and also at The Interpreter with his essay by Kerry Muelstein by coincidence. Please take advantage of that which has hitherto been done well, which is of course what he did. What he does is done well. What Robert Rittner does is crap, or at least it's froth. And be wary. <laughs> be very be wary wary wary. Of discourse, which easily catches attention but does not meet the high standards to which we should adhere. And then there's a nice picture of Carrie Mulestein. Oh, my Lord. You know, I think he needs a shave in this picture. He's looking kind of scruffy. I think it's a good look on Carrie. So there is his response. His non-response response, response, which really is not meant to respond to anything that was said in the podcast, but meant to explain why it is that his tail is between his legs and he is running out of this room and away from doing a podcast like a scalded dog. So now I'm going to conclude this podcast by reading David Bakovoy's comment on that one quote from this essay written by Cary Muelstein, where Kerry Muelstein advances the catalyst theory as a possibility because this really strikes David Bacavoy the wrong way and he'll explain why it is that it strikes him the wrong way in his post. But first the quote from Kerry Muhlstein: we do not know if Joseph Smith was intending to provide us with what this would have been like anciently or if he was trying to provide us with what we should derive from it spiritually in our day. Here's what David Bacavoy has to say. Okay, man, I just have to say this. Back in 2012, I was teaching for BYU. I had spent over a decade devoted to LDS church education and was fully committed to helping the church appropriate critical scholarship. Kerry Muelstein called me into his office because he had concerns. He had read some of my online arguments for the book of Abraham as inspired scripture but he was concerned that instead of seeing the book as an ancient text, I suggested that Joseph Smith was using the papyri to provide the saints with a spiritual work of modern scripture, that it really didn't matter what was on the papyri, Smith gave the church what we needed. This led to the orthodoxy hearing, where faculty determined that my views and academic training were simply too critical to be trusted at Brigham Young University. So in other words, here David Bockevoy is talking about the fact that back in 2012, Kerry Muhlstein read David Bockevoy saying, basically, the catalyst theory about the book of Abraham, that Joseph Smith may not have translated from Egyptian, but that God inspired Joseph Smith to give us what it was that God wanted us to have, and Kerry Muelstein was so upset about this that he basically called a faculty meeting on the subject and prevented David Bakovoy from being employed at BYU because of this issue. And now, in 2028 years later, here Kerry Muelstein is writing an essay that I just read to you and the specific quote I just read where he is now advocating the same thing that he found so objectionable in David Bacavoy. Eight years ago, as David Bakovoy put it, this led to the orthodoxy hearing where faculty determined that my views and academic training were simply too critical to be trusted at Brigham Young University. So it's interesting to see Kerry post things like this today in response to the recent Book of Abraham podcasts. You seriously can't make this stuff up, man. And I will second that salient observation from David Bakovoy: You really can't make this stuff up, man. So that is Kerry Muelstein. On the issue with his very lengthy essay, his non-response response from the Interpreter online journal that went up yesterday, August 25th, 2020, to explain in detail, elaborate detail, and in fact, repeated and repeated elaborate detail, why it is that he is not a chicken shit for not coming on the podcast. Message received loud and clear, Carrie, you and John are not chicken shits for refusing to come on the podcast. You are true scholars, not chicken shit. Okay? <laughs> you are true scholars and true scholars never want to come on a podcast or a radio show or be on TV or in a video to describe their views. Oh, wait a second. Except Kerry already said that he'd been on videos and podcasts in the past and he probably would be in the future. You know, this entire essay by Kerry Muelstein is emblematic of the stuff he writes about the book of Abraham. It is self- contradictory you can't make any sense out of it because he'll say one thing and then he'll say the opposite thing and you're supposed to just agree with him and nod your head because he's the egyptologist in the room well now we have another egyptologist in the room carrie and john he is one of the most preeminent egyptologists in the world his name is robert ridner and the fact that you refuse to be on a show with robert Rittner speaks volumes and it's not the volumes that you just spewed out or vomited out in your foamy froth in this essay that you wrote yesterday, Carrie Muelstein. Instead, the volumes it speaks is that both you and John Gee are afraid, actually terrified, to come onto a podcast with Robert Ritner where you know that your views will be subject to scrutiny and it will be shown that your entire career spent trying to prop up the book of Abraham don't amount to a hill of beans when subjected to the scrutiny and the light of true Egyptology and scholarship. And what this shows beyond any doubt is not only do I know it, not only does John DeLynn know it, not only does Dr. Robert Rittner know it, but you know it as well, Carrie, and John Gee knows it too. You know the evidence does not support your position. If it did, you'd be happy to come on the podcast and explain exactly why it is that you're right and Robert Rittner is wrong. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.